Hello and welcome to e-commerce Q&A. This is the show where we address the needs and interests of e-commerce store owners and operators just like you. During the show, we'll cover such topics as how can you maintain a healthy lifestyle while growing an internet business? How can you optimize your shipping? And everything in between. That's right, folks. We're going to address lifestyle as well as the tactical nuts and bolts of growing an e-commerce business. And now, e-commerce Q&A. Hello, folks, and welcome to e-commerce Q&A. This is the show where we talk about all things e-commerce. And today, we're talking about a topic that you don't normally hear on a podcast about e-commerce, sleep. As you know, we've been on a kick for a while talking about health-related concerns because if we're honest with ourselves, when we're running these internet companies and these companies that are always on and are never off, there's that temptation to always be working. And it's a very easy temptation to give into. And I'll totally admit that that's something that I constantly fall prey to. I'm joined today by a very special guest, Dr. David Cunnington. He is a sleep physician and director at the Melbourne Sleep Disorders Center in Australia. David, welcome. Yeah, thanks very much. So it's, <laughs> this is very much a um, guilty as charged situation. You know, we're talking about a topic that I already know I'm personally not doing well in. And I have this belief that, oh, you know, I know that one day I'll have more time to sleep, supposedly. Or if I just can fit in a little bit more work today, then I'll be ahead of the game tomorrow. And then I'll be able to be more productive next week. It's just horrible now because I'm, I'm only getting six or seven hours of sleep on the best of days. And before we launch into that, I, I just want to acknowledge that I think my beliefs are completely messed up about this. And so I'm very curious to know what you think on this topic. Yeah, so a lot of your, your beliefs are messed up. They're ones that are almost universally held in modern Western society. So don't feel too bad about that. <laughs> I don't know that I feel bad. I just, it's one of those things where you know that you have a lot to learn, right? So, but let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us how you've gotten into sleep medicine? So I trained initially as a pulmonologist from Australia. You can tell from my accent. And then as some of my post-fellowship training actually went to Boston and worked at Harvard to doing some research in the area of sleep. And at the same time, the big research group there was looking at how the brain works during sleep and really got hooked on everything to do with sleep. And that was about 15, 16 years ago. Uh, and I've really ever since worked in the area, pretty broad area of sleep. And because sleep is not just about the medicine, so my day job as a you know, sleep physician, seeing patients in my practice, but sleep's also about what we do through the day and lifestyle and social factors and cultural factors, which means I get out of the office a, a bit and do this type of thing, talking to people about sleep and the importance of sleep. That's very interesting. I'm really hoping we have time to discuss that. I mean, this is a topic where it's kind of like we're spending a third of our day, at least we, we all know we should be, sleeping. And we hardly ever think about it or, or talk about it, but it's something we're doing every single 24 hours. We're all doing this. So what is the correct amount of sleep for most people? That's such a hard question. Seems easy at face value, but it's actually a really tough question because it varies so much from person to person. Some of the latest research shows that there are particular gene types where people can sleep much shorter and not seem to be tired or suffer ill consequences, whereas other people need nine or 10 hours of sleep. Our professional bodies like the American Academy of Sleep Medicine put out recommendations saying, you know, it should be at least six and might may need to be at, at, at up to 10. Now, that's actually not that helpful a recommendation because if, you t if someone asks me how much sleep do I need and I say, well, somewhere between six and 10 hours, they're like, yeah, come on, you know, help me a bit here. Mm. In, in, in essence, what we try to work for for working adults is an average of seven nights 
sleep, sorry, seven hours sleep each night across a week. So recognising there may be days where it's a bit shorter because of late night functions or have to get up early for other things, but then trying to program in some catch up later in the week. Hmm. So speaking of catch up, if you can't get whatever you got, the ideal amount of sleep for your own personal body is on a particular night or a series of nights, let's say you're at a conference, is catching up a real thing? Can Is that even possible to do? Yeah, absolutely. And the good news is it's not a payback in a one-to-one ratio. So if you lose four hours of sleep, it doesn't mean you've got to pay that four hours back. So it's a sort of a bit of a win in that respect. Because we've all had you know weeks or even uh, months where we've been busy for work reasons. But then if we take a holiday or take some leave, we'll sleep longer for a day or two. But after that, you know, we're not feeling sleepy and we're not sleeping longer. You know, we've essentially burnt off or paid back that sleep debt. Interesting. Huh. You know, we, in technology, we talk about tech debt, and it's very much where, you know, the more you neglect it, it, it gets uh, exponentially worse, you know? <laughs> so it's good to hear that if you're behind on sleep, it's not like you're doomed or something. You're going to have to take five years to just to catch up on sleep. I believe that for this last year, and that was kind of overwhelming for me. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, someone I saw a couple of months ago, you know, an engineering type, so, you know, he's a software programmer, actually, had developed his own sort of graphing program where he was graphing his cumulative sleep debt over the last year. And the, it was just off the charts. And it was, it was something that was just, he felt like he would never be able to overcome this enormous sleep debt that he calculated, that he'd accumulated. But fortunately, that's not how it works. Mm. Are you familiar with the quantified self movement? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm barely familiar. I just met someone who told me about it. It starts to make me think, oh, well, if you can catch up so easily, then... Is it okay to kind of try and optimize your sleep schedule so that you only get as little sleep as is really needed for you? Uh, we'll get into that, but no. Okay. So okay. One, of the, one of the helpful things, though, is we can measure more variables around health and sleep it is using it to make sure we're not running behind. Hmm. So rather than getting the sense of I'm going to sleep the absolute minimum that I need to, more getting the sense that I'm going to make sure I'm tracking in the mid-range of where my mm. sleep need is so that I'm not going to fall below performance mm. or put my health at risk. It's kind of like a financial budget almost. You don't want to be yeah. <laughs> running that on the edge all the time. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So we came across an article on The Atlantic that was saying that excess fatigue can come from having almost a mental overload and uh, the brain needed to process a lot of emotions, memories, and, and things like that. Is that true? And does sleep help with processing kind of big mental things? Yeah, not really. So this is one of the things I come across all the time is people see sleep as the antidote to everything, tired, fatigued, burnt out, emotionally unstable. You know, it's just the, the place to hide. Whereas in actual fact, if we're a lot of fatigue can be yeah, burnout, stress, worry, mental overload, um, external circumstances that we feel like are outside of our control. So a lot of people I'm seeing in my practice are wishing for sleep to fulfill that function. Mm. It's just another pill for them. Yeah. And whereas in fact, it's almost I'm trying to recalibrate them and say, you know what, it's not about the sleep. Sure, your sleep's disturbed, but I'd expect that given how much stress or how much nervous energy you've been running on. That's the focus to work on that. So I really want to come back to that in a few minutes because I'm very curious about that. A few more questions about sleep itself and then sure. maybe we can discuss these broader topics. So sleep trackers, you started to talk about those. Do you recommend a specific sleep tracker? Do you recommend using like a sleep diary, things like that? 
Yeah, so sleep diaries are pretty simple. You know, the good good side is, you know, down and dirty. You don't need any tech. Bad mm-hmm. side is we're not always that great at estimating how much sleep we get. Mm-hmm. Particularly people that aren't great sleepers, we can tend to underestimate how much sleep we're getting. So I do like sleep trackers. The one I used to like is the jawbone range of trackers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In essence, they're a victim of their own success. They were you know, so good as a consumer device that they've now sort of withdrawn from the market and uh, repackaging and rebranding as a professional device. So they're going to reappear in the professional market. And so the other ones, Fitbit, I don't mind, they do a reasonable job of measuring total amount of sleep, the light sleep, deep sleep, that sort of stuff. Yeah, not so good about that. But they can give people an idea of how much sleep they're getting, not just each day, but it's actually really helpful to look across a week and across a month to make sure you're not behind. And the key is to be you know, pretty much a disinterested observer of it, you know, like a financial budget. Make sure you're just tracking on range, not to be riding the roller coaster of the, oh, my God, I only got four hours sleep last night. That's going to be terrible today. How am I going to get through the day? You know, not, you know, looking at it in that emotive type of way. Hmm. Let's talk about supplements. We talk about pills, but... <laughs> Uh, given the definition of a supplement is something that's going to support an overly, uh, like an overally good thing that you're doing. I think I just made up a word. Are there any supplements that you recommend for promotion of sleep or maybe I'll broaden it, boosting energy generally? Yeah, so if you, for each side, so the to try and improve sleep or to boost energy, you know, people are doing lots of things already. So particularly on the boosting energy side, caffeine's the sort of the drug of small business and the drug of entrepreneurship to you know, help with energy levels in a sleep, and, but both in a wake and sleep sense. You know, the, interesting, that term supplement or natural, if, if anything works, it's working by changing brain neurochemistry. So don't kid ourselves that because it's a supplement or it's herbal or plant-based that it's working via some sort of pixie dust or magic type of phenomenon. You know, it is working by changing brain neurochemistry in the same way a prescription product uh, might be. Mm. So I'm therefore somewhat cautious about supplements, even though I'm less concerned about risk, because Mm -hmm. one of the things that can happen with supplements is people get a sense of outsourcing the responsibility of sleep or energy to the supplement rather than looking at what other things they can do to help manage sleep or help manage their energy levels. And that often means they don't get a satisfactory response because they'll still be eating poorly, working too many hours, not managing stress, not have the right behavior around sleep, and just expecting the supplement to patch over those ills or deficits. You know, you've alluded to the idea that there are better ways of handling things like lack of energy, lack of clarity. Maybe we should transition at this point and talk about what those are. How do you generally start off with with clients who are coming to you with these type of concerns? Yeah, so one of the things to talk about is, you know, if someone's tired and not sleeping well, is trying to unpack it and work out, is it a predominantly not sleeping well the cause of the tiredness? And Mm. it really is. The the times when that is true is when someone's got a genuine medical sleep disorder. So something like obstructive sleep apnea or restless legs or you know, a really difficult insomnia, something that's evolved over you know, a number of years and lifestyle factors haven't been able to fix it. For the majority of people, the not sleeping well is tied up in how what they're doing across the day, 
whether it's how they're managing energy levels. And I like to use the term nervous energy rather than stress. Because then if you think of that as nervous energy can come from a range of different things. It can be behaviorally, you know, we're all proud of, you know, running like a busy bee, you know, go hard so that, you know, you're sort of running ahead of everybody else. Yeah, that is actually harnessing the sympathetic nervous system. And so it's turning up, deliberately turning up that nervous energy drive so that we feel like we can get more done. Now that has consequences at night. If you're running on nervous energy right through the day, you shouldn't expect to be able to just go into bed, feel calm, feel quiet, drop readily to sleep, or during the night stay asleep for prolonged periods because that nervous energy is still going to be ticking along under the surface. So I try to look at how people run their day. And if people's day is from the time the alarm goes in the morning till the time they're getting into bed at night, they don't stop. And even once they're in bed, there's that thinking about their business. People in small business, you know, you're working in the business during the day and thinking about the business and what you're going to do with the business at night. Uh, You know, it's a real challenge. So it's trying to look at what people do across the day and often making them take a break through the day and trying to work on that if people are pushing harder, it can actually reduce their energy levels, reduce performance. So the way to move forward sometimes is actually building in some downtime. How much downtime would you recommend building in for an average day, weekday? It really varies from person to person. And I also think of it as you've got to have a period of skill acquisition or mm. you know, learning a new behavior. So if we're teaching someone, one of the techniques we might use would be mindfulness-based meditation. If we're teaching mm-hmm. someone that, we might give them a prescription of, I want 30 minutes, six days a week, and we might do that for six to eight weeks. And people then get a sense of some confidence in that skill and feel like they've got some skills. And then someone you know, will match it then to their working day. As someone who doesn't really have their own office or doesn't have defined downtime during the day, it might be little one to three minute breaks periodically every one to two hours. Uh, that sort of just a minute movement where, you know, for one minute each hour, it's just pausing, taking the foot off the accelerator. For someone whose workday is a bit more structured and they've got a you know break in the middle of the day, it might be taking 10 minutes out to take a walk, just, you know, leave the office, you know, get, it, get out of there for 10 minutes. Or it might be some time at the start of the day or transitioning at the end of the day, having a defined period where I'm home, I've now got the kids in bed, I've done a little bit of work to just square out the day. And now I'm going to take 10 minutes just as a transition to mark that transition from, you know, I'm a mentally active, get things done sort of person to now I'm transitioning into the I'm winding down, my day's done. Mm. <laughs> I think this is kind of the nub of the issue in a sense. I have a six-year-old daughter and she's very similar to me in her personality. One of the things that I see in her that I also struggle with myself is a tendency to seek stimulation. And so my wife and I look at her and when she's kind of being hyper and crazy and not obeying very well and things like that, we say, oh, she's overstimulated. We're just going to give her some downtime and then, you know, a little bit of extra sleep, some more napping, just kind of calming her life down. And after a while, she's fine. And it's made me think about my own life because I think I read an article which was saying that it's possible to get addicted to overstimulation and the idea being that this really just wanting something to change, kind of like a the whole idea of a change is as good as a vacation, but wanting a million vacations during the day um, and just almost seeking to become distracted. I'm curious, is this an actual thing? Like is overstimulation a real problem? And how does that play into all this? Absolutely. 
So it's part of our modern society. You know, there's different terms people use. It might be distractibility, mm-hmm. you know, lack of attention, um, divided attention. You know, I struggle to watch television, you know, particularly the major sort of channels or cable channels because there's so many moving parts on the screen at one time. It's just feeding that whole divided attention. You know, and people I see would say things like, you know, I, there's no way I could read a book. I couldn't even read a chapter in a book. Now, once some, an article goes beyond 500 words, they're thinking, right, where's the next thing? Mm. So that's, you know, and so that's when I talk about mindfulness-based meditation, really what mindfulness is is training us in a skill of maintaining observation in the present moment. And that's a really nice skill for just training people to focus on the one thing and sit with that one thing. And it's not something that comes naturally because we're trained to actually be looking for the next thing even while we're on the one thing that we're doing. Um, and so practicing that skill is the bit that takes time, is getting people to be much more comfortable uh, you know, to focus on the one thing for a period of time. And I see it too in people I um, who come to my office or you know, report that they're not sleeping very well. You know, I'll ask them, you know, how long could you sit still for without a phone, without a book, without a screen, before you felt you needed to get up and do something. And often that's a very short period of time. I have a friend that has insomnia and he was recently diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of curious if, if sleep disorders are ever linked with really serious diseases like cancer. Yeah, absolutely. But it it's we sometimes it's hard to work out what's the chicken and the egg, and mm. some of the research that's out there essentially shows that if you take cross-sectional data, at one point mm-hmm. uh, people with sleep disturbance then are at higher risk in the future of developing medical illnesses. The problem is that with that data is that lead time's pretty short. So what we actually think is it may be that it's part of an early sign of the cancer was the sleep disturbance. Mm. And it was on oh, wow. the cancer got you know, picked up some months later. Because I think of sleep sometimes a bit like the canary in the coal mine in terms of health. Mm-hmm. So for someone who has, they're used to their sleep being a certain way. And then if their lifestyle is exactly the same, but sleep changes, that for me is a bit of a red flag. Mm. Something changed with health. Is there something that's shifted? And therefore, we're going to see something else appear um, in due course. I don't think of it so much as someone with long-standing insomnia that's going to cause them to have cancer. Mm-hmm. There is a small signal with that. So a data set of nearly uh, 70,000 women who worked night shift over 30 years, so we're talking a very big stimulus or very big uh, impact of sleep disturbance over a very prolonged period of time, had a small and very small increased risk in breast cancer. So that's where some of that sort of statements about poor sleep will cause cancer comes from. But the magnitude of the risk is pretty small and the amount of sleep disturbance they had was really big. Now, you said something that I'd like to key into for a second. You mentioned that, you know, them working at night constituted a sleep disturbance. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so think of that as working, and what we think the risk comes from is you're working at a time when your body clock is expecting to sleep. So your behavior is out of sync with your internal body clock. And whilst we can all do that, you know, if we need to pull an all-nighter or we need to work a night shift, we can do it. 
but our intrinsic body clock will still be expecting us to sleep. So your immune system, the immune surveillance, regulatory mechanisms that control appetite, feeding, fasting, activity, energy levels, are all expecting you to be asleep. And so when we constantly are out of sync with our internal body clocks, that's where we see impacts on health. And not, not just in terms of health risk, but yeah, chronically feeling tired. Hmm. And, and that's based on the, basically, when is the sun coming in? When is the sun coming down? That's what the circadian rhythm is ultimately based on, right? Yeah, so that's where we're biological beings and sort of grew up in a very natural environment, or that's where we've sort of evolved from. Mm-hmm. And so our own internal body clock is synchronized by those external cues. But everybody's clock is slightly different. So there'll be some people are early birds, preference to go to bed at nine o'clock, for example, and be up at five. And others are more night owls, preference to go to bed at one and be up at you know nine or ten and be on in the office at eleven. And recent research shows that rather than the early bird gets the worm and those early morning types are the hardworking ones, which sort of some of the belief in modern industrial society sort of perpetuates that belief. In actual fact, if people worked according to their own intrinsic clock, so the night hours started work at 11 and work till 7 p.m., they perform equally well as the early birds that start work at 8 and finish at 5. So it's a matter of, for a given individual, recognising their preference and making sure they're roughly in sync as best they can with that preference. Interesting. Hmm. So we've discussed mindfulness and meditation are there any other lifestyle-focused remedies, for lack of a better term, or practices that you can advocate? Yeah, so there's a, on the sort of slowing down side, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be as structured as mindfulness. Um, particularly for small business owners and entrepreneurs, it really boils down to permission, you know, guilt-free permission. That's the key, to, to pause or, or take some time out. Uh, rec- in recognition that in the business and leadership literature, There's good research showing that people who sleep less because they've traded off sleep for work or other activities make worse decisions, have less happy employees, have workplace cultures that aren't uh, as positive and have greater staff turnover. The really good uh, research showing that uh, for business owners, managers and leaders, taking a little bit of time out, allowing uh, enough opportunity for sleep makes a big difference in terms of their performance. It's not just about you know, hours at the desk or you know, hours at the wheel. Uh, it's about how well-rested we are. They're trying to get people around that so that they can guilt-free, give themselves permission to take some time out. It doesn't have to be as formal as meditation. It can be, you know, it's going to go for a walk. Just going to spend half an hour with the kids and not half an hour with the kids where you're then taking phone calls and planning things and on the phone, but actually half an hour with the kids focused on what the kids are doing. So that's on the sort of slowing down side. And then on the boosting energy side, there's really good research from the depression literature, but also in the fatigue literature about a technique called behavioral activation. And you could sort of summarize that as get up and go. So first thing in the morning, people still feeling a bit sluggish rather than that, oh, you know what, I'm just going to rest here a bit longer. Actually getting up, but not getting up and starting work, but getting up, getting outside because that helps cue in the body clock to the natural light-dark cycle, um, and moving, because the physical activity wakes up a lot of the body functions and gives energy. Interesting. So it seems like there's a, like a productive cycle and there's a vicious cycle. 
um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just trying to understand this, but the vicious cycle I'm thinking of is, uh, you know, when you're not getting enough sleep because you're stressed out and then you can't sleep as well, you know, your body's wired because you didn't slow things down before you needed to sleep. Mm-hmm. Is that correct so far? Yeah, it is correct, but it's not on a day-to-day basis. It's not a case mm-hmm. of if we've been busy over months, we slow down one day, we'll get the return that night. It takes weeks for that to unwind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then there also seems like there's a healthy productive cycle where even if you feel a little bit tired, going ahead and getting up, getting your body moving, and then towards the end of the day, slowing down, taking time off, that will aid in having more energy the next day. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it takes a bit of a circuit breaker to see that. And that's you know what I say is we talked about before we started recording, you know, I'm on retreat at the moment, so I'm having a week out at a health retreat, partly so because I'm teaching guests and uh, about healthy sleep habits and managing energy. But just, re- you know, they have that recognition that actually taking some time out and then when they get back into their day-to-day lives um, are much more confident that, yeah, taking some time out is going to help them make better decisions. Hmm, interesting. So, uh, Dr. David, I'm wondering if you can share with our guests a bit about how they can learn more about these topics and potentially benefit from from your services going forward, as well as your podcast. Yeah, so we run an online site that's got information about sleep. So that's sleephub.com.au. And also on that site, we host a podcast called Sleep Talk. And Sleep Talk's available on iTunes and Google Play and other podcast apps or podcast catchers. So, yeah, if people are looking for information, there's information there. I also write for Huffington Post. So there are articles on Huffington Post uh, that I've written about sleep with these sort of messages. And some other good sources of information about sleep, the National Sleep Foundation in the United States provides a good source of information uh, about sleep as well. Do you do things like coaching or individualized uh, therapy with folks that are maybe not in Australia? Uh, no. <laughs> so no. in my, my, my day job or my regular job is I'm a, a medical practitioner in Melbourne, Australia. And because I'm a credentialed medical practitioner, you know, my medical indemnity and medical registration doesn't cover me uh, offering services to people outside of Australia. I'm going to need to solve that problem. <laughs> well, um, very interesting. So maybe I can close with one final question, which is at what point should someone who thinks they're having, you know, sleep problems, at what point should they actually seek something a little bit more strong, like concerted you know, services from a practitioner such as yourself or sleeping pills? Oh, I don't even know if sleeping pills are a good idea, but when do you need to escalate your treatment of your own sleep problems? Yeah. So if you feel like you're not sleeping well and have done some of the common sense things like mm-hmm. um, implementing some good practices around sleep, allowing enough time to wind down, reflecting on um, the degree of busyness and the balance and making sure that you know it's not just a case of you know going 24-7 and still not sleeping well, yeah, that's the time to go and talk to your health professional. Okay, makes sense. Well, did you have anything else you'd like to leave everyone with here? Yeah, so a couple of other points. So some of the language around sleep, often I also find with people that are running businesses or entrepreneurs they want to absolutely squeeze the most out of sleep. So they're trying to get sleep to be absolutely perfect. But for sleep to work well, it's got to be good enough, not perfect. And if people strive hard to get sleep absolutely perfect, they they can paradoxically develop a bit of an anxiety about sleep. 
because I'm, you know, constantly tweaking it, monitoring it, putting in place mechanisms around sleep. We really need to just step back and let the body do its thing with regards to sleep. And then the second point would be embrace napping. Although napping is not necessarily part of a business culture, you know, you've seen large companies now introduce nap pods and those type of things, but it works for people in small business and entrepreneurs as well. It doesn't have to be as structured as going to a pod, but just give it again, giving yourself permission, feeling a bit tired, not making headway, actually take some time out. Close your eyes for a bit. Even if you just rest, you'll find you're much more productive when you then get back to it. I'm so glad you discussed napping. I was feeling like, hmm, I could use a nap about now. (laughs) I'd encourage that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This I've learned quite a lot. I've surprised by a lot of the things you said, and that's that's great. That's a pleasure. Oops. Sorry, folks. We lost Dr. David's audio at this point. So here I am recording the ending later. I did get a nap. It was very refreshing, and I've started taking more naps since then. In fact, I just got up from one just now. Encourage you to take one whenever you're feeling down. It'll help your perspective. So Dr. David's podcast is linked in the show notes, as are the other resources like you can expect. If you have any questions about sleep that you'd like us to forward to Dr. David, send those to podcast at celery.com. That's S-E-L-L-R-Y. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Have a good week.